Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 357 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new movie Us, directed by Jordan Peele. And this will involve spoilers for everything in the movie, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Evan Narsis, who you may remember from our panel on Black Panther back in episode 302, and to our panel on Sorry to Bother You back in episode 323. He's written about video games, comic books, and pop culture for io9, Kotaku, Time, and Techland. And he also wrote the Rise of the Black Panther comic for Marvel. So Evan, welcome to the show. Thanks, David. Then next up, we've got Tanana Reeve Du, who also appeared in our panels on Black Panther and Sorry to Bother You. Her novels include The Living Blood, Joplin's Ghost, and My Soul to Keep. And her short story collection, Ghost Summer, won the 2016 British Fantasy Award. She teaches classes on Afrofuturism and Black Horror at UCLA, and also teaches an online class on Black Horror over at sunkenplaceclass.com. So, Tanana Reeve, welcome to the show. Thank you. And also joining us today is Craig Lawrence Gidney, who you may remember from our panel on Sorry to Bother You, and from our panel on Queers Destroy Horror back in episode 173. He's the author of the young adult novel Bereft, and the collection Skin Deep Magic and See Swallow Me and Other Stories, and his new novel A Spectral Hue will be out in June. So Craig, welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, so let's start off with Evan, and have you just tell us about what were your expectations like going into Us? You know, my expectations were really mid-range, because um, based on the trailers I'd seen, um, I knew that there was going to be kind of a familial theme um, um, where we're going to see a family kind of um, in a remote location stalked by doppelgangers that look like themselves. Um, and I thought it was going to be like a tighter um, kind of uh, storytelling experience. I, I Get Out was very tight. Um, it was like a clockwork machine. And I thought Us was going to be along the same track. Um, what I wound up seeing in the theaters completely uh, defied my expectations because it was, I think, it was a lot more ambitious and broad and sprawling um, than than Get Out was. So that's kind of where I started with 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 where I was before I saw the movie. I mean, that's interesting that you mentioned watching the trailer because I didn't watch the trailer for this. And so I had no idea what to expect. And then after I saw it, I was glad that I hadn't watched the trailer because I felt like it gave away a lot of the, you know, the first third of the movie or something. Did you have any uh, conflicted feelings about whether you should watch the trailer or not? No, I was glad I watched the trailer um, because, uh, you know, I wanted to see where the performances were landing in terms of um, the energy. Like, I wasn't sure if this was going to be something that was going to be a little bit more manic or um pressured and I, I want to see if he was he was playing with with that kind of energy at all and um you know i do think there's a lot of uh, tonal variation in the movie itself um but I, I, I that was still a surprise to me when i wound up seeing the movie there's a lot more comedy in the movie than i was expecting and that was a surprise um and that wasn't really present in the in the trailers that i watched you watched the premiere of this at south by southwest is that right yeah, I was uh, lucky enough to be able to go to the premiere at South by Southwest. Yeah. So, what was that like? What was that experience like? Oh, it was, it was amazing. You know, um, the 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 anticipation was so ridiculously off the charts, and um, you know, uh, uh, 
it was really cool to see the cast get uh, ovations when um, uh, Jordan introduced him before the movie started. And, you know, uh, uh, Jordan Peele knows how to work a crowd. You know, he's <laughs> obviously got strong comedic instincts. Um, I remember when he introduced uh, Winston Duke, the crowd went, M'Baku! <laughs> and he said, no, no, it's not going to be M'Baku after this, because he's doing some stuff uh, in this movie that y- y- y'all won't believe. Um, and he was right. Uh, so it was, it was really fun. You know, I think it was a um, a crowd that was eager to kind of um, get shocked. And I think they were. Um, um, what's interesting is I think, you know, I'm sure we're going to get this to a later, into this later, but I, I really feel like uh, uh, two viewings is the optimal experience for watching us. So I, I wonder about how, how much that first crowd, um, how they experienced the movie after seeing it a second time. Yeah, I was only unfortunately able to watch this once. Uh, I really wish that I had time to watch it twice because I, I, I have the feeling that watching it a second time, you have a completely different experience. Um, did you you interview Jordan Peele, right? Was that at the same event? Yes, that was at South By. So I interviewed him the day after. Um, the movie premiered on a Friday night and I interviewed him on a Saturday. And it was a quick interview, but, you know, um, one of the things that I was uh, – gratified to feel like feel confirmed is that like you know there's so much intentionality going into his work as a filmmaker um you know he talked about uh uh an awareness of what expectations were and then working to defy them and i think that's one of the best things about us like i think down to the casting you expect to see a a character an actor with like winston duke's proportions doing certain things and um he doesn't give you that and it's uh, it's a I think a really delicious tension um, between expectation and execution that he manages to mine in this movie. And I, I hope he keeps doing that. Yeah. Well, let's definitely talk a little bit more about that in a bit, but first, um, Tanenari, if you want to tell us about what your expectations were like going into us? Uh, off the charts. <laughs> I'm a huge Jordan Peele fan. I'm teaching a, a course, you know, at UCLA uh, that was inspired by Get Out and he, came by the class a couple times. So not only was I in full high expectation mode, but I had my students all riled up too. I was playing the trailer in class. I was playing five on it in class. <laughs> so it was sort of this um, circus-like anticipation, I would call it. Uh, and I saw the trailer basically way at the end of the day on Christmas Day. I know a lot of people were going crazy, but but I was doing other stuff. And, and when that twist showed up in the trailer that it was a family of doppelgangers i just felt like yes um because it's a super scary trailer um and i had every expectation you know and excitement as a longtime horror fan and by the way a longtime horror fan who has seen a lot of movies about families in peril in remote locations but i have not seen that with a black family before um, or at least I'm having a really hard time thinking of what horror movie that would have been about the fairly standard setup of a family in peril on vacation. Um, it's, yeah, it, so yeah, I was just pretty much burning with excitement. And my husband, Stephen Barnes, and I got a surprise opportunity to get a private screening at Monkey Paw. Um, we were just sitting there with us on a screen and a guy taking notes, you know, I don't know what he was taking notes about. Maybe where we laughed or if we made comments, I don't know. But in any case, that's, you know, I mean, Evan had this, uh, frankly, that experience at the premiere must've been wild, you know, a cast 
screening like that. It's just such a, a warm family feeling. Um, and I was also sort of swept away, even though we were just alone at the studio. It was felt kind of naughty, you know, that we were watching it early. And um, I, I, I was just uh, thrilled to be there, you know. So I walked out having loved it, of course, because I could see, oh, my gosh, this is so ambitious. This is like so much more than we were expecting from the trailer. Because like Evan said, the trailer is pretty much dispensed with in the first act, you know, or slightly into the second act. And then the movie widens <laughs> to this more like post-apocalyptic thing. It's like, whoa. And then it takes that turn down the escalator, which I'm sure <laughs> we'll get into. But so I was like sort of whiplashed by all that. And, you know, my immediate feedback was the like, yeah, we love it. Oh my God, that was great. Thanks so much. But also I was wondering, and I was worried because I wasn't in a big theater, like at a screening to see what other audience reactions would be. And I would, I didn't know if audiences would be willing or ready to follow Jordan Peele down that rabbit hole, you know, it was like, cause I was like, Oh shoot, it is exactly what the trailer says it is. And it is nothing like what the trailer <laughs> says it is at the same time. Are they ready? Are they ready hammer? You know? <laughs> you know? So, uh, so to see the reaction from South by Southwest and then the subsequent um, screenings, those us first screenings and all the excitement was so heartening because it just opened so many doors for creators to come out of those predictable boxes, you know, and horror, there are all these like beats that you have to follow and it, it, it all becomes quite predictable and tiring after a while. But Jordan Peele's success with us really gives all creators, but especially black horror creators permission to just let loose with their creativity, wherever it will take them. So we can see something new. Well, and I just want to explain for listeners in case you don't know that monkey paw is Jordan Peele's production company. Oh yes. Um, Thank you for pointing that out. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything else to say about your visit there? Like in, in addition to watching the movie, did you talk to anyone else there or anything? No, and Jordan Peele wasn't there. And he, had, yeah. you know, he had, he had told us beforehand he would not be there. Um, so it was, it was very intimate and private. And, you know, it, I always feel free to sort of comment to Steve during a, a screening, but especially so when you're the only two people there. So I just <laughs> remember how much fun it was to be able to talk when I wanted to without any self-consciousness, whatever. Um, yeah, it was a it was a really intimate experience. And then the other time, uh, uh, the other screening was a cast and crew screening in L.A., but it wasn't like the one at South by Southwest. The only cast member, I think, who was there was Evan, the little boy who played Jason, which was great. And he was charming and exciting. But no Lupita, Steve. Sorry. Sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was mostly crew. So uh, I had to see it in Chicago. A third time, uh, I really wanted the experience of seeing it with a black audience um, for a black horror film, especially because crowds are traditionally somewhat vocal. And that's part of the movie going experience I enjoy with horror. And that was fun, too. We just, you know, gave away some tickets on Twitter to some fans while we were in Chicago. So we brought our own group with us so we could have our own group discussion afterwards. (laughs) And it was great. Well, yeah, maybe as we work through the plot of the movie, you can tell us what you were saying or what audience members were saying at different parts in the movie. Um, but first, I want to also get Craig in here. So, Craig, tell us about your expectations and what it was like watching this movie the first time and stuff like that. Well, uh, the first time I tried to see the movie, uh, it was actually sold out. So hmm. I had to go to a second 
viewing. You had to go to the second choice viewing. And I guess my expectations were, um, at first, they were kind of middling, to tell the truth, because doppelganger horror doesn't actually bother me that much. I mean, I wanted to see his take on it. And then that opening shot completely destroyed any idea that I had beforehand. I thought it was going to be a a fairly normal, you know, they're coming here to replace us, but it was so much more. And that opening scene was just so beautifully filmed with, I guess I can spoil it, with the rabbits. That was just absolutely terrifying in a way that that um I think completely defied my expectation because it was sort of this dark surrealism that I enjoyed about it. Right. So the first shot of the movie is there's all these rabbits. There's a wall of cages with rabbits in them, and we're getting a slow tracking shot away from that. Um, and then, as I remember, we cut to 1986, right? And there's a little girl watching yes. television. What What did you think? When it's it's the hand, what is it? Hands across America. Or yes, something? hands the... across America. Um, what I thought was that it was there's a term used in, well, it's not just horror fiction, but in sociology called hauntology, where basically it's sort of the ghosts in sort of past sort of nostalgia. And there is a weird 80s style nostalgia when you saw the original, you know, when you saw the little girl watching Hands Across America. And it was sort of the way that it was filmed, too. The video wasn't quite the actual video of the of the television screen was correct in terms of the way that it was transmitted. And that's another thing that I really enjoyed about it. Well, yeah, so let's explain. So Hands Across America, I don't actually remember this, although I was around in 1986, I was a little kid, but it was some sort of, um, it was supposed to raise awareness or raise money for um, feeding the hungry. I don't know if anyone knows more about this than I do. Yeah, I, w- I would call it ultimately performative activism, because it was, the idea of it was to raise awareness and raise money for the homeless. But from what I understand, it turned out to me kind of more of a failed stunt that might have raised awareness, but didn't actually create a new world for the homeless. Uh, so it, it was ultimately, I think, an empty gesture. But, and, but yeah. Uh, oh, but so the idea was that people were going to, there were going to be people like at the Pacific Ocean and people at the Atlantic Ocean linking hands and then try to form as much of a chain of people holding hands between the two as they could. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And there were obstacles and, and somewhat predictable problems with it. But from when I and I again don't remember it either. I was in college at the time, but I, I was, I guess, in my own bubble world because I have very little memory of this even happening. Um, but it was a big deal, and yeah, it didn't turn out to be much. Well, but it obviously made an impression on. Actually, I think Jordan Peele saw like a video more recently. I don't, I don't know if he would have seen it back then. Um, but yeah, but so so anyway, so so the movie opens and we see this ad on TV for this this charity event, and then we sort of quickly cut to um, the Santa Monica Pier, um, Santa Cruz, Santa Cruz, yeah, 
Oh, sorry, Santa Cruz Pier. Uh, see, I live in New York, so. Uh, <laughs> all the Santas are like. <laughs> it's all California. California is all one big. It's all the same, pretty much, right? Um, but, but Northern California, it is notable, though, in Santa Cruz, though, you would have a lot less diversity than you would in Santa Monica, which I think was part of the point of uh, choosing that location. Um, yeah. Because this is a family in complete racial isolation. Right. Well, so why don't you tell us, Tanner, Tanner just sort of paint a picture for us of, of walk us through what happens in that that opening Santa Cruz uh, sequence. Well, a little, uh, you know, little girl's parents are arguing. There's a great deal of emotional distance between them, juxtaposed with the girl noticing images of people in love and having a great time. So she's pretty miserable, wanders away. Um, into basically uh, a carnival attraction full of funhouse mirrors, which, by the way, I hate all of those walk-in carnival attractions. I have a great fear of someone touching me um, left over from one in elementary school. So that's creeping me out right away. And, of course, the mirror images are creepy, and she sees what appears to be herself, and that's the, the the setup. Is that something happened in there? I think she might yell. Um, we he, what he does is he cuts that scene up into pieces, revealing a little bit at a time. So all we know at the beginning is that something bad happened in there, and she was traumatized. Yeah, I think we get a close up of her face, sort of making a a startled expression. Right. Um, and then um, we see it cuts to a little bit later, and we see the same girl in a, um, like a therapist's office or something. And her parents are arguing about how she doesn't talk anymore. And how could you leave her by herself right. or, or let her sneak away and so on. So, right. So the same fractured, um, marriage or relationship, I don't even know if they're still married. Uh, and the little girl silently kind of taking it all in and, and, and he's playing to our expectations that she's just experienced a trauma, which is why she's so silent and why she doesn't say anything. And he slowly unpacks that over the course of the film uh, with more emphasis on the mother saying, that's not my daughter. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> that's not my daughter. Um, but, but that's later. All we know up to that point is, you know, boom, cut to Lupita playing Adelaide. She's asleep. My husband always makes the point, um, Stephen Barnes, that while he does not necessarily believe the movie, it's like all a dream. It is interesting that Lupita is asleep, I believe, the first time we see her. You guys remember? Yeah, yeah she is. She's, yeah, she is asleep in the car as they're driving. Yeah, they're in the car. So, I mean, if, if someone wants to make the argument for the dream movie, go right, you know. There's evidence in there, but I would I would say that um, it might have been a dream, a memory, um, or just really a prologue. <laughs> and then we cut to the family, which is this beautiful, glorious moment I've been waiting for my whole horror life, which is a black family on vacation in a horror movie, just loving each other and everyone being... Um, smart and engaging and, and believable. Uh, yeah. And we're off and running. Well, so how about Evan? Why don't you tell us about what were your impressions, your initial impressions of that, of the four members of this family? Yeah. I, uh, like, like Tanana Reeve, I was just thrilled, you know, um, I, you know, have been waiting to see again, a, a family that was normal, you know, that, that felt yes. familiar and, and, um, you know, 
they were still very much black, right? I, I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times about this very phenomenon, um, about how, you know, their blackness is still legible. It's still in, in, in the text and the performances, but the movie's not about them being black. It's not about being black in a predominantly white institution or country. It's not about that, um, in, in the foreground of the text anyway. It's there subtextually, but, um, I loved it. And, you know, the, 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 the way we see them banter and joke with each other and argue and bicker, that all felt familiar to me. You know, like we, I, we used to take road trips to, to Disneyland, um, when I was a kid. And it was the same thing with my brother and my sister. Um, you know, uh, uh that's what a, an experience of going on vacation with your family is like. And it's, it's all too rare that we've seen that, um, through characters that look like uh, Winston Duke and Lupita Nyong'o and Shahadi uh, Wright and, and, and Evan Alex. Like, you know, usually uh, the default for a safe, kind of uh, comfortable, familiar family experience happens through white uh, characters. So I, I, I really love that part of the movie a lot. Well, the, the Winston Duke dad I thought was so interesting because he's kind of a nerd, and he's kind of tough and he's kind of into consumerism. So he's kind of this interesting, interestingly complex personality. We can't just sum him up in one word like you can with a lot of characters in movies. Yeah, no, I feel like, you know, the big subtext, rather one of the big thematic concerns of us is consumerism and classism and class warfare, haves and have-nots. And so, you know, every time he, he expresses like a little bit of envy over what, uh, the other family that they're on vacation with, what they have or don't have, um, um, I thought was really telling. And I think keys into what's happening to, in, in the fabric of the movie, um, with regard to the tethered and how they've lived these underground existences that have, have been very deprived and have lived without, you know, the most basic comforts that we take for granted. So, the consumerist stuff was was great, but you know, like yeah, Winston Winston Duke's character Gabe is a is a guy like I know, you know. I won't so, go so far as to say he's like me, but like he's I know guys like him, you know. Um, you know, they're nerdy a little bit, they joke a little bit, they posture with machismo sometimes when when it feels like it's necessary. Um, but overall, you know, like it's just a person that has multiple facets, and you know, so often on in the cinema. Um, black people don't get rendered with facets. They get rendered with one dimension at best two. Um, um, and this felt like, you know, a, a, a guy who, you know, just had a lot of different angles in life. You know, he, he, he wants to make love with, uh, with his wife on vacation. He, you know, chides the kids. He, he tries to talk his way out of a stressful situation. And then he, then he, he threatens violence. You know, this is, you know, it felt like a, a, a gamut of expression that just, uh, fleshed out uh, a really believable three-dimensional portrait of a, of a guy. Yeah, one thing my husband noticed before I did, uh, I think after the first viewing, was he looked at Gabe afterward and he said, that's Jordan. And I was like, what? He's like, he looks like him. I'm like, no. <laughs> but in fact, on second viewing, I noticed this sort of nervous habit Gabe had of touching his his glasses, which is something I've seen Jordan do quite a bit. But he said as much during a, a roundtable interview with uh, me and Brooke Obie from Shadow and Act and Jasmine Lawson and Clarkisha Kent, where basically Gabe was not what he, uh, Winston Duke was not 
what he had in mind when he was writing the script because the character was more modeled after him, which kind of explains why such a big guy stereotypically you think would feel at ease with confrontation. Gabe is not a confrontational guy, you know, and of course not all big guys are. So that speaks to what Evan was saying about, you know, the many facets to this character. He's a big guy who doesn't like to throw his weight around, but if his back is to the wall, he will to protect his family. But he's still inside, you know, that that geek who just who uh, is a peacemaker in the family, uh, very accommodating and patient with his kids and with his wife. Yeah, fantastic character. And if anyone doesn't know, um, Winston Duke played Mabaku in Black Panther, so he's a very physically imposing, you know, person and does an amazing job through his body language to to seem when he's playing Gabe to seem sort of smaller and less imposing than he is right and 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 that's sometimes something bigger black men will do sort of as a learned personality trait not to be intimidating not to look aggressive so i don't know if that's his story but or just nature you know but that's certainly how he played it well one of the things that i really enjoyed about the film uh when i was meeting the characters was the fact that it actually showed a black middle class family and that's really important because i think that a lot of people think that a lot of people are people of color are sort of all come from the same lower class especially in film especially in hollywood and it was nice to see this intact family get together and sort of play around with one another Another thing that I would also want, I don't know if this is too early to bring it up, but there was that uh, statement that uh, Jordan Peele kind of got in trouble for saying that he would not cast a white lead in the films. And the thing that, um, first of all, that the reaction to that from some quarters was ridiculous. But the other thing is, is that it sort of underscored why you needed those characters, why he casts the way that he casts, and that that particular viewpoint was a completely different viewpoint. Um, one of the things that I loved about the movie in general was that as soon as all of the stuff is set up, the characters automatically go into action. And I've seen way too many movies with white people slash white families where it takes a little longer for it to, for them to understand what's happening. It's almost like they're genre savvy. <laughs> yes. Well, well, right. Before we get too much into stuff, let's just quickly also set up. So there's, there's four members of this family. We talked about the dad and there's the mom who's Lupita Nyong'o. Uh, also from Black Panther. And then these two kids who are great, um, Zora and Jason. Um, Craig, what did you think of, of the child characters? I thought that they were really well done. Um, one of the questions that I actually had was with the boy character, I was wondering if he had some sort of affect to him. There was some sort of... Uh, way that he was portrayed that made me think that he was on the spectrum or something. And then yes. kind of vaguely alluded to by those two obnoxious twin girls of the other family they're vacationing with. Um, well, he, he's always wearing a mask, like a Halloween he's mask always, or something. Right, exactly. Um, and 
I love the character Zora. I know the sort of uh, overly, like she's an A student. She's always sarcastic. She's very whip smart. Um, I love those characters. Yeah, she's a track star, I think, right? She's a track star. Yes. Um, but it's also kind of the teenager that she's always listening to music and kind of ignoring her parents. Right. Right. And then this, the way that they develop her in that, uh, I mean, there's certain scenes where, you know, I really loved the way that she behaved. If I could jump in, uh, I just want to comment on one thing that Craig said, which I, I agree wholeheartedly with. It's so satisfying to, uh, to see that family jump in and respond to the threat immediately. Um, part of it's built into the plot because um, of things that we learn later on, but um, I, I do feel like, you know, without sounding a kind of way about it, there is something very black about that. You know, like, okay, uh, uh, you, I don't know, for those of us who walk around in black bodies, for me, it's like, okay, you enter a new space, and you try to see what people's attitudes are towards you. You're ready to respond in a certain way. That's where code switching comes from, you know. And we're we're very aware of how we're being watched or observed and and, and being processed. And I feel like they're kind of responding to the threat without, you know, a lot of disbelief or being stunned. And instead, okay, we need to protect ourselves. I, to me, that felt like um, Jordan Peele channeling a part of the black experience that often goes um uh, uh not that is not spoken about very often um and going back really quickly to Winston Duke and the casting thing um you know when I talked to Jordan Peele after seeing the movie uh again talking about subverting expectations but you know you cast a dude built like Winston Duke in the movie and the expectations that he's he's going to he's going to kick some butt right he's going to smash some heads um, and I said, you know, the fact that you hobbled him within the first, you know, 20 minutes of the movie um, um, was was quite a surprise because, it, again, it's not the thing that you expect a character with that body type to be doing is basically calling around and being helpless uh, for, for, for most of the uh, not being able to use his physical kind of imposing nature. Um, and he said, you know, yeah, that was totally intended. You know, it, it's something that I guess he leaned into once he cast Winston Duke. Um, because, uh, again, it was kind of casting him against type as far as the, the way the part was originally conceived, but I thought that was really brilliant. Right. I'm starting and to... If I... Oh, sorry. Oh, I'm just... I'm starting to realize how much plot there is uh, in this movie, so maybe we need to, like, sort of move through it maybe more quickly, but but yeah, let me just say, so so the... um So this family is sort of on vacation. They've come to their, I think, their summer home, and... um. Yeah, our, our, which is close to the Santa Cruz beach. Um, and so, yeah, like, and then at night, this, uh, there's a home invasion and there's like four, um, duplicates of themselves who are all dressed in kind of red jumpsuits and carrying scissors and only, and all are silent except for the, the duplicate of, um, the, uh, Lupita Nyanga character, the mother. Um, I know, I, I don't know, uh, Tanana Reeve, is there something else you wanted to say, or um, do you want to move on and talk about the... Uh, well, I'll the try to leap into the uh, the plot thread with the tethered, um, but also dovetailing with something Craig said earlier about Jason, which 
as the mother of a child who is on the spectrum, I was like, who is actually named Jason? I was like, oh my gosh, this kid has ADHD or there's something, you know, a lot of repetitive motion, the mask wearing, um, the way his parents were so understanding of his inappropriate outbursts. This is not something that just happened now. This happens all the time. And it's Jason, though, who has the most understanding once you're out of our reality and you go through the veil. He's like the one who first notices that there's a family in the driveway. He first vocalizes, it's us, because not being that rooted firmly in reality, when reality takes a turn, he can follow it much more easily than they can. Um, and one of my favorite moments in both the suspense and family dynamics that teaches us so much about these characters is when uh, Winston Duke's character says, get the bat, Jason, unfocused, says, what bat? (laughs) Zora has already brought the bat, okay? And that is the (laughs) dynamic that plays. Zora is your go-to person. Um, And and each each family member, you know, as you've mentioned, has a doppelganger, and they're all rather monstrous. Uh, Zora's doppelganger appears to be the most dangerous, you know, and basically... Zora has to run, uh, ostensibly for her life. Uh, the other one, uh, Jason's doppelganger, it loves fire and was burned by fire. But because of his intuition, Jason is a boss in, in figuring out how to communicate and manipulate his, his twin, um, in a way that, that really no one else can, except maybe Adelaide, because I mean, do we want to spoil it to spill it all out? Or is it sort of a walkthrough of the film? Because, well- well, yeah, this is full spoilers. Um, I mean, so we can. I don't. Why don't we save the big twist just just to talk about it for a little bit later? Um, okay. But let's let's talk about the. Um, you know, Red is the Adelaide's duplicate. She gives sort of this um, this monologue um, when they the two families confront each other. So let's talk about that. I'm curious what you guys thought about that. Um, well, one of the things that. Uh, I guess in terms of uh, recounting what happened. So there's a home invasion. There are three of them. Uh, three of the doppelgangers can't speak at all. They sort of shriek. And only Red, Adelaide, is kind of, uh, she speaks in a very damaged type voice. It's very creepy. It kind of reminded me of the voice from Reagan and the Exorcist in some ways, um, the way that she speaks. She gives a villainous sort of expl- explanation or half explanation. And one of the things that I really enjoyed about Peel is that he knows when to throw in humor, even when it's scary. So there's a certain point at which they ask where they're all um, under the power of all the doppelgangers, or rather they're incapacitated. And she, Adelaide asks, well, who are you? And Red says, we're Americans in that way. And yeah. I love the way that completely, it was both funny and scary. Well, yeah, there's there's just a great combination of horror and humor throughout the movie, but in this scene in particular, where um, the 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 father says, "Like, what do you people want? You can have the boat," and the daughter says, "Nobody wants the boat, Dad." <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. 
but but yeah, so so Red basically says that that these doppelgangers have lived underground and were somehow you know, have lived very unhappy existences that were somehow a weird mirror of the lives of the people of their, um, the corresponding person on the surface. And whenever something good happened in, in the life of, um, Adelaide that read self, you know, underwent a, a similar sort of thing that was sort of a, a dark, unpleasant, twisted version of it. Um, is there anything else, Evan, is there anything else we should say about what we, what we learned about the exposition at this point in the story? Um, no, I mean, you know, basically from, from, from the minute the home invasion happens and that monologue happens, um, it, it becomes like a stalking movie, you know, like a, 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 a thriller movie. And it's, it's a lot more kinetic and, um, it moves a lot more, which I thought was an interesting contrast, uh, to get out, which happened all in one space. Um, you know, it was a, a, a kind of ornate, elaborate, Northeastern home, but like it all happens on the kind of Armitage, Armitage, I'm mispronouncing their name, them white folks on their, in their house. Yes. <laughs> uh, um, it happens all in their house. Uh, whereas this takes you all over the place. Um, yeah. So, uh, I think we can get into maybe the, some of the meteor stuff right now. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting how the movie widens its scope, you know. Um, I was expecting almost secluded woods, this one family in peril. But then we come to find out that the doppelgangers have arrived at the neighbor's house, the white neighbor's house. And these are vicious. These are the more traditional horror movie slasher moments and get out. Um, Adelaide's family, while we thought we were terrified for them, had an easy ride compared to what happened to the neighbor's family. The twin girls just slashed, uh, the, the neighbor and his wife slashed, and it's like, oh, okay. Uh, so, um, that's sort of the red meat for horror fans. Um, notable, and I think intentional also, that Peel was gentle with the spilling of black blood in this film. Um, and this is something that's going to come up again and again as more black creators turn to horror. There's this desire, of course, to feel real threat and to have the thrill ride of a horror movie, but there are triggers with seeing black death and black blood that mirror things that we see on a fairly regular basis. Uh, so how do you balance that? And I think um, Jordan Peele has an answer embedded in here. I mean, there is um, true peril to the Black characters, but they don't get it quite as bad as their neighbors, certainly. Or nearly as bad, I should say. Well, like Evan, I saw when you interviewed Jordan Peele, I think you said that the this this white family, the Tylers, that they played the role in this movie that uh, Black characters yeah, I, 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 I asked. I asked Jordan that outright. I was like, "Did you do them? How did they do this?" Uh, and he's like, "Come on, you know." Uh, yeah, he, he very much. He confirmed that. You know, like it's like you know, usually if it's a primarily white uh, production, um, you know, when black characters show up, they're seasoning, they're they're sidekicks, they're not the main dish. You know. Um, uh, but that's not, wasn't the case here. So he kind of inverted that paradigm. I thought to hilarious effect, you know, to the point where like, you know, Tim Heidecker's character was almost entirely comic relief. You know, he's kind of a sloppy bore, um, who, who's in a marriage that seems like it's kind of run out of gas. Uh, uh, uh his wife played by Elizabeth Moss, like jokes about killing him. 
<laughs> which is, makes it even funnier <laughs> when the doppelganger later uh, uh, sees uh, um, her doppelganger husband dead and smiles. Um, yeah, so it, I think that was very intentional. Um, and, you know, he, 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 it was a conscious effort to center um, uh, a black family and black performers in this movie. But, but again, not make it about race. You know, I, I, one of the things that stunned me was, you know, the first 20 minutes or so, you're like, okay, getting used to all the weirdness of the movie and trying to figure out what the plot is. But it, it kind of clicks. For me, it, was, it, was, it wasn't right away. It took a little while. I was thinking like, oh, wait, this is Lupita's movie. This is Adelaide's movie. This is Red's movie. She's the main character of this story, um, which, again, I think is something that is, happens so rarely um, um, that it's noteworthy on one level. But the fact that her performances were so amazing is makes it noteworthy on another level. I, I, I didn't know that Lupita had the range to do some of the stuff that she did, quite honestly. Um, and it was uh, utterly stunning the amount of like nuance um, uh, and, and modulation she put in her performances as both characters. That that was a tremendous revelation, uh, Lupita, in this film. And Jordan Peele was in a position to say, "Wow, you know, it's been a few years since Lupita won her supporting actress Oscar for Twelve Years a Slave, and she hasn't had a lead role." which is somewhat stunning, but not if you understand how Hollywood works. Um, <laughs> and it, it has been and, and still is. I mean, we haven't quite gotten to the promised land yet, although we're getting closer. But a filmmaker like Peel can take Lupita and give her an opportunity and frankly give audiences an opportunity <laughs> that we haven't had before to see this this range playing two characters flawlessly and carrying us through the, the this film. Right. And so in this movie, I think Evan was was sort of talking about there are two big genre twists to my mind where it sort of starts off as a home invasion story. And then about a third of the way through, it becomes more like a zombie apocalypse kind of story. Um, so, Craig, what did you think about that when when we find out that seemingly everybody in America has a doppelganger that are all murdering them uh, on this night? Well, I thought that it was an interesting twist in that sort of the the backstory behind what the tethers were in sort of her villainous um, monologue she reveals that uh, red reveals that that everyone has a doppelganger there are i should also say before the movie starts there's like um there's like a Chiron or rather a subtitle that explains that there are hundreds of unused uh, tunnels beneath the United States. So, and it, you don't know where it's going with that. So when she reveals what happens, that these tunnels are full with other people who basically have to weir live bizarro versions of the upstairs people, it was... Uh, it was very chilling and very affecting. And also, to me, in my mind, it's both a zombie, you know, it's sort of like a zombie survival home invasion. But there's also a strong streak of just flat out absurdism, absurdist horror that we often don't see um, that is embedded in the text or in the movie. Well, I mean, to my mind, that's sort of the second big genre twist that the story takes because in the third act it, it seems to me it becomes almost like a surrealist avant-garde art house 
kind of horror movie or something like that. There's a a moment uh, when Adelaide is looking for Jason. Uh, I don't know if I'm getting too far ahead, but, you know, you have your basic showdown, your traditional horror showdown, you know, good versus evil. And but 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 Jason has gone missing. So she's looking for him when she goes down a series of stairwells, you know, and this kind of thing. And there's a moment she enters a red space where I thought, oh, this looks like Freddy Krueger's boiler room. And I haven't (laughs) talked to Jordan Peele about this, but there are so many Easter eggs in this film for horror fans. I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if that's entirely intentional is that it feels not just it feels like a familiar moment we've had in a horror movie and, and a moment, a nostalgic moment from a horror movie, but she doesn't stop in the boiler room. She goes down an escalator and it's when you go down that escalator that the post-apocalyptic thing, which was such a revelation to me and so exciting that it was happening everywhere and that the, the movie had busted itself open, but down the escalator, we're going to new territory. This isn't something that we've seen again and again um, in horror films. This, is this is surreal this is almost not american and it's in its uh i had just seen um the remake of suspiria before um seeing us and i was struck at how that last act in particular reminded me of sort of i mean the bright colors and the dance especially because ballet is also a theme in suspiria i thought wow this feels like we're watching not just, you know, a horror movie or an American movie, but it just feels like a uh, an international film of some kind. Yeah. I mean, Evan, what do you think about that? Yeah, the, the that last uh, bit in the underground kind of complex was amazing. Um, you know, it, it's funny that you mentioned uh, the allusions to horror, Tanana Reef, because, um, you know, like the first... Uh, actual shot of the movie um, with the TV screen in it. Um, a few of those videotapes are horror movies. One of them is Chud, which was, you know, like a, <laughs> a, a B-grade horror movie from the 80s. That the, the title is an acronym for Cannibalistic Humanoid Underground Dwellers. Hmm. Um, and, you know, he's basically telling you who these people are from like the, that, that very early frame of the movie. But yeah, the underground stuff did feel like um, a weird experimental kind of mutation from the rest of the movie. You know, it, obviously there was enough plot threads to 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 tether it, pun intended, to the rest, to, to the, rest of the goings on. But um, yeah, it, it did feel weird. You know, the choreography. You know, essentially that their last uh, confrontation is like a dance. Um, you know, the the parallel structure. The, the mirroring what was happen, happening above ground with these twisted, tethered versions of the people we'd seen in, on, on the pier, on the boardwalk. Yeah, all that stuff was like, oh, it's gotten real weird up in here, huh? Um, hmm. so, so that was really great. I think, you know, that was the thing I enjoyed most about us is that it just, the, the, the scope of, of the story it wanted to tell and the themes it wanted to touch, um, just got blown out super wide to the point where like those last frames of the movie right before the credits roll are of the tethered successfully doing hands across their, their version of hands across America. Uh, And you're like, Oh, this world is screwed. Like there's, there's, you know, one of the things I've been talking about with my friends um, after seeing the movie is that 
you know, whatever uh, Adelaide or Red um, um, and and the family are escaping to um, is not going to be anywhere better off, right? Unless, you know, for some weird reason, this isn't happening in Mexico, like they had planned to escape to Mexico. But, um, yeah, like this is this is a fundamentally altered world. It's fractured, it's permanently fact, fractured and broken. Um, and I think, you know, again, that's what, what Jordan Peele was getting at about the times we live in it has, have passed an inflection point with regard to the, the, the separations and the tensions, um, um, that are kind of roiling through America. Uh, I think, you know, once that, that big camera pull out with those aerial shots happen, you're like, oh, this is, this is, this is the true horror of this movie is that the, the, this, this world is not coming back from this. I mean, I had the sense that this was an American, like a, an American phenomenon, and that if they could escape to Canada or something, they would not be tethered in Canada. Although I don't know if there's anything explicitly in the movie that, you know, would give you that idea. I mean, there is better healthcare in Canada, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, just the line "we're Americans" definitely does seem to, pun intended again, tether it to uh, our our story, this moment in history. Perhaps I find it interesting that. Early on, when um, they arrive at the Santa Cruz beach and there's a homeless man being loaded into an ambulance, ostensibly homeless, um, Adelaide tells the kids, you know, look away, don't look, which is sort of what we do often as parents is, and, and you know, not just as to our kids, but we ourselves look away and don't look, which is very much what this is speaking to. Who are the hidden people who enable you to have your privileged lifestyle? You know, whether it's iPhones and smartphones in, from factories in China, uh, where our agricultural, you know, agriculture, where our, uh, goods come from, who, who, the quiet, the silenced, you know, there, there are a lot of people who, who are tethered. And yeah, one of the, one of the big myths, uh, certainly in American politics right now is this idea that the more you have, the better a person you are, or the smarter a person you are, the more hardworking you are, you know, when in fact we all have countless twins around the world who are as, as deserving as we are for everything we have, but never had any opportunities. So how sympathetic do you think we're meant to be toward the, tethered by the end of the movie i mean because they seem to do a lot of bad things in the movie well uh one of the things that i thought was interesting is that they kind of used a trope called the dark messiah trope and red is kind of like the only one who can speak and she comes up with this entire idea to to destroy the above world and just the idea that she's a, she's sort of like a revolutionary in that way. I guess we, we should explain that this is the point I think we need to explain the big twist at the end. So, so Craig, why don't you say why, why is Red the only one of the tethered that can speak? Well, as it turns out that she actually is a, that Adelaide is her doppelganger. And when she was a little girl, she saw Red saw, I get this confused. I know, me too. I was talking about this in class. So the real Adelaide saw her doppelganger. Her doppelganger knocked her out and dragged her down to the below world and handcuffed her to the bed. And Adelaide went on to live a 
sort of normal above ground life while her doppelganger was forced for all to do all these horrible things uh, that in this bizarro version of her life. So the twist is Adelaide is one of the tethered, but she escaped. Right. So then let's let's come back then to this issue of how much sympathy, like where are our sympathies supposed to be? Are they supposed to be with Adelaide or with the tethered or? You know, it's, it's, it's funny, David, because uh, I don't think you're supposed to feel sympathetic for all of the tethered, but definitely for Red. You know, if, if, if we go by the theory that Red is the original Adelaide, then um, she's uh, um, just trying to get back to what she lost, you know, um, a life above ground, um, um, you know, the promises of what uh, she had gotten used to as a child, you know, fresh food, food that wasn't rabbits, <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, you know, different clothes that you can wear on different days. Uh, yeah. So, you know, you, you have to imagine that, um, a childhood imprint of those experiences had stayed with her and motivated her this whole time to, to create this plot. You know, it's, and, and, and going back to the plot diversions that we mentioned before, the reason she can talk is she's originally from above ground. Um, so all those reasons can create some sympathy for Red, you know, um, but I think you could also be sympathetic towards Adelaide too, you know, because this was a little girl who um, got a glimpse of what it was above ground um, and knew what she was being denied and this kind of second class, lower, lower case existence that she was living and, you know, got in herself to choke out her doppelganger, drag her down underground and, and handcuff her so she could take that life, you know, and I think one of the things that Lupita uh, uh, manages to communicate so extremely well is I feel like Adelaide understands the fragility of the life she enjoys um, uh, almost throughout the entire movie. You know, when she's when 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 they think Jason's lost, she's so believably panicked and worried because she's like, oh, this is my son. You know, like if she's living a lie, she's like it, she realizes that you know, a strong wind could blow it over at any minute. And, um, you know, when you see the movie more than one time, you see her revert to the kind of guttural expressions of the tether. You know, when she, when she's, um, I think when she breaks free, uh, uh, from the hand being handcuffed the first time, she kind of growls. And, um, every time she fights or has to get violent, like it, it is an animalistic and feral expression. Um, and one of the most moving scenes for me is like, you know, after uh, the teenage daughter doppelganger um, gets hit by a car and winds up getting flung into a tree and hanging there dead, like Adelaide touches her very gently, like almost like in a maternal instinct. Like you realize that there's loss of children and, and futures and lives happening across each side of that divide. And, you know, I think your sympathies can go either way towards, towards Red or Adelaide. And I think is, I, I'm pretty sure this is intentional that, uh, it's one of those Rorschach tests, right? Where like, oh, the way you respond to a certain character tells you about yourself and, 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 and what your priorities are. Absolutely. I have to agree. In fact, if you notice with the promotion for the film, the poster with Lupita's twin faces is an ink drawing that looks like a Rorschach. So yes. 
very much this film is what we bring to it as well as what the filmmaker intended. I mean, I feel like most viewers when Adelaide escapes with Jason at the end will be sort of like on her side, you know, will be hoping that she escapes, not hoping that red bludgeons are down in the tunnels and, you know, adopts Jason. But I mean, it's, it's but it's, it's sort of like you have to think about it more to, you know, to get those sorts of sympathies because the, the language of film is such that, you know, you're sort of, we're so attached to Adelaide as our, as the protagonist, as the character we identify with that it's sort of like, you know, we, our sympathies stay with her. I, I feel like even after we find out that maybe she's more the villain than anyone in the story. And again, what does that say about us? You know, uh, I mean, the viewers, not the movie. Uh, but what does that say about us if you feel sympathetic towards her, despite the reveal of this horrible conspiracy and, and, and interpersonal violence, violence that she visits on other people? Um, yeah. Well, there's also that scene at the very last scene where her kid, Jason, is looking at her with this really intense look and you begin to realize that he might have heard the entire story that he knows that his mother is a doppelganger or does he know that his mother is a doppelganger it's kind of ambiguous i think i think he does know and i think he like the rest of us in the audience really won't care that much as long as she's still the same <laughs> loving mother. We, Because that's the thing, we fell in love with that character. And this is sort of the insidious nature of films where you are meant to empathize with antagonists. I mean, frankly, Adelaide was just a kid when she got free. She wanted some freedom. That's all she wanted. So, so yeah, I, I completely sympathize with her. And I think, you know, Jason is at that age when kids start to see through their parents' BS anyway. Uh, the, the myths start to fall and you realize they're only human. So I think that kind of symbolizes that coming of age for him. Yeah, mom is not who he thought she was, but he's still going to love her. Well, let's go back to the opening scene because Evan was saying how Jordan Peele plays with our expectations. And in retrospect, when you think back on it, you're like, oh, this, this little girl goes into a hall of mirrors and gets attacked by a duplicate of herself. It's a very natural, uh, you know, extrapolation of that to think that, oh, wait, the girl, the, the duplicate is the one who, you know, escapes into the real world, right? But I never, that never occurred to me. But I, I think it's because it's such a, a familiar pattern for horror movies for the character to undergo some trauma right at the beginning. And then we yes. come back to the mirrors later when they have to address their trauma. So we're just so conditioned to think this is the same person just by the familiar rhythms of horror movies. And also the evil reflection is a, is a common trope in horror. I used to love mirror horror until it started to get overdone. But we've been trained to think that that's not necessarily a, a person. It's just sort of an evil reflection. Yeah. I mean, like Red is an actual person with, with enough different experiences to serve as like, believable psychological motivation for, for this whole plot. Um, but, you know, I think going back to what Craig was talking about with that last scene between Jason and Adelaide is that, um, again, it's it's all, I think, thematically woven throughout the movie about trauma and not talking about trauma. You know, one of the things that stunned mm. me was that, that bedroom scene in the first act between Gabe and Adelaide where, you know, she's like, you know, I want to go. This thing happened to me when I was a kid. 
and he's hearing about it for the first time. And I'm like, y'all have two kids and never talked about like your baggage. Um, but you know, also at the same time, that's, I mean, I've been in relationships like that and other people have too, where you like, you just don't talk about the bad stuff and you try to carry on like it didn't happen and hope it won't have consequences in your life. All too often, often it does have consequences and then, then you have to deal with it. And sometimes it might be too late. I feel like that's one of the threads that gets woven through this movie. And I feel like Jason, at the end of the movie, is basically on the cusp of making that same decision, right? He's like, well, you know, this person who I thought my mom was maybe kind of sort of my mom, but also crazy and from underground. And, uh, but you know what? She feeds me. She takes me to the beach. Um, <laughs> she killed that other woman for me. So, yeah, uh, I guess this is the thing I have to live with knowing about my parents now. Knowing about what it is that makes my life um, comfortable and survivable up until this point, and I'm just going to roll with it. And he pulls the mask on, you know, like that's that's, and I think that's again what what Tananarive was saying before about you know uh, economic injustice all over the world is that yeah, you know, those of us who have first world problems um, um, enjoy these lives um, on the backs of of those who don't, you know, and. That's a kind of um, trauma and knowledge you have to live with um, while you're living, quote unquote, above ground. Um, um, and I think like that 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 little scene was a, a microcosm of that dynamic too. As Jason realizing, okay, well, you know, some bad stuff had to happen for me to still be alive, but I'm still alive, so I'm just going to go with it. Yep. Well, and, and I think that that's what makes another thing that makes us sympathetic to Adelaide is that you know when she's in her 30s or whatever and has two kids. She knows she did this awful thing when she was eight years old or whatever, but what is she supposed to do about it at this point? You know, like she just has to kind of keep going on. It can't be fixed at this point. She just has to keep going on, I guess, or I don't know, maybe, maybe could she go, I don't know what she could, maybe she could go back and try to fix it, go back, go to the underground tunnels, I guess. But I think we sort of sympathize with her ability to just kind of want to live her life and not, you know, let the past dredge itself up. They both had the right to live up here, you know. Yeah. She she took her shot. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the film too is I didn't guess the 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 ultimate thing until it actually was revealed, the ultimate twist that she was but one of the things that sort of struck me, particularly when they kill Zora's sister, whose name is Umbre, which is interesting because Zora means dawn, and her sister was Umbre. Um, the fact that she, that of all of them, she seems to know what to do immediately. And it's betrayed in a way that she's not just this frightened woman who is, who feels something eerie is happening. She found she's eerie, but she knows what the threat is and how to deal with it. And that's one of the things that I thought was interesting, sort of a twist on the woman in peril sort of trope. Oh yeah. I mean, so often in a horror movie, a heroine walks into a kitchen and there's like a huge <laughs> knife set there and you're like, get a knife, get a knife, get a knife. And she doesn't get a knife. Zora, 
is already, she already has the weapon. Like she's always looking for weapons and she doesn't just hit you once. She will hit you over and over and over again, which is your dream care. I mean, she's definitely is on my team if I'm ever in a horror movie. <laughs> and the fact that she somehow managed to make Jason, like when she, they shut Jason in that closet with his doppelganger, she gives him some sort of sign to do something. I forget exactly what it was. But there's some sort of trick in which Jason overcomes his doppelganger. And she seems to know what to do immediately. I have always, I really love that about the character. Well, this uh, speaks to something Evan was saying earlier about, I, I think it was Evan, playing against those uh, typical expectations in a horror movie. What happens when you have black characters, right? Because I wrote... um an essay about uh, the history of blacks and horror movies. And, you know, you can go back to like the 1970s routine by Richard Pryor about the exorcist, where he says, if there had been black people on the exorcist, the movie would only last five minutes. Hello. Goodbye. You know, that's it. <laughs> We're not going to, because when you come from a culture and a family history where, Hey, the house is on fire now because your neighbors are jealous, right? That's your yep. family story. You know things go bad on the drop of a dime. You don't. So many comedians make jokes. When you see people running, you don't interview them about why they're running. You run. Then you find out why we're running, right? And this is uh, the frustration a lot of Blacks have watching horror movies is that the characters don't behave in ways that we recognize that we would behave. And he definitely is trying to address that, uh, especially through Zora. But the whole family is pretty efficient. I guess I just want to mention, Tanana Reeve, that you just appeared in, and I think co-produced this documentary called Horror Noir about the sort of the history of black horror? Yes, thank you. I should have brought that up myself. <laughs> I was going to say, how are we an hour in and we have and we have part of it? I know, right? I, I was, well, yeah, so this has been uh, such a, a cap to the experience because the documentary came out on Shudder in February and then it was followed up by us uh, in, in March. So that whole conversation about black horror has been very lively by people who didn't know really there was any such thing. And, and sometimes you do get people not understanding, I mean, well, why do we need, you know, why do you have to have black horror? <laughs> Which is just saying like, why do you have to exist? <laughs> Basically is, <laughs> is what that question actually means. But we are absolutely at a turning point in our culture now where we can move away from all these tired and insulting tropes of the sacrificial Negro, the first to die, the magical Negro, like almost as if, and especially in horror, if a screenwriter adds a black character, I'm, I'm automatically suspicious because, yeah. okay, why, why is this black person here? How are they going to misuse this character? Uh, and, and so often you're not disappointed. Even more recently, I have to say, I, I mostly liked Bird Box on, on Netflix, but that sacrificial Negro trope jumped up out of nowhere. Um, uh, there's a character played by Lil Rao Howery who wasn't Get Out. Um, and, and he's not a, anyone's hero. He didn't even want to go on the expedition with everybody, but then they get there and he sacrificed himself to save the others in a way that just didn't even make sense from a psychological standpoint and a story standpoint, it only makes sense through the prism of the sacrificial Negro trope. Like that's his job. <laughs> that's why he's here to save all these other white characters. So I could not be more excited that Jordan Peele is taking all these tropes head on and subverting them and creating a, a celebratory space 
for all of us as black horror fans, but I would also say for horror fans in general, because we don't want what's tired. We don't want what's overused. We want what's fresh because fresh is scary. Let's go back to an interview. You said that you were talking to your husband, Stephen Barnes, during the movie. Like, What kind of things were you saying to him? Well, just little stuff. Um, the first time I remember was when Lupita was on the beach and I guess was not feeling like being social. And the white neighbor was kind of chatting and trying to get her drinks. And Lupita just said, I'm not really good at talking. And I said, oh, my God, we're allowed to say that? <laughs> that makes my life so much easier. <laughs> I didn't even know you could just say that to people. So that was the first thing, just kind of the humor. Um when it expanded out and became more of a post-apocalyptic feel, which was not even hinted at in the trailer, uh, you know, I, I remember saying, oh, my God, it's like zombies. <laughs> so that kind of stuff. Um, how about Evan? Do you have any – do you remember any uh, audience reactions or anything while you were watching it? Uh, there was a good 15 seconds of laughter um, uh, when they were comparing kills in the car. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I, I cackled out loud. Uh, I was like, uh, part of that comes from being like a video game critic in, in terms of, and in addition to other kinds of pop culture. So, you know, when comparing who has a higher kill count, um, was really hilarious to me. Um, you know, I, I, I was sitting by myself with people next to people I didn't really know. So there wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot of back and forth. Um, but you know, the second time I saw it, uh, um, I was on a date. And I was watching, uh, the woman's reaction and, um, and it's really interesting to see, uh, she's a horror buff. Um, so she did, she wasn't uh, jumping or scary or whatnot, but like those moments where people lean in, they lean forward in their seat to kind of pay attention more or like, you know, they, they, they kind of sit up straight when a dramatic turn happens. Like us is a movie where, um, the audience has been, maybe the quietest I've ever been in because uh, I think there's this loaded expectation that you have to pay attention to everything Peel um, and his fellow filmmakers are doing on the screen because you might miss something really cool. Uh, uh, that said, the one thing that was really obvious, but my my favorite joke in the movie was when um, Elizabeth Moss' character is bleeding out, crawling towards the uh, the speaker, the smart speaker, and she says, Ophelia, call the police. And the speaker responds, <laughs> now playing, fuck the police by WA. And I was like, well, there you go. Uh, what, what, one of the, one of the things that I love about the movie was how Peel dealt with, you know, horror, the horror genre's cell phone problem, right? Now we're making movies set in the present day where, where, uh, isolation is a lot less, um, uh, viable as a plot device, right? Um, so, you know, you dealt with the dead battery or the no signal or the, 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 the overcrowded, uh, lines, uh, cell phone lines, towers, that kind of thing. They can't get through. And then when, you know, oh, here's a piece of technology that could help save the day. It just winds up, um, uh, underlining the cruelty of the themes and the plot of the movie in a really brilliant way. Like the fact that that was a song that played in that moment was utterly hilarious. Well, right. And I just want to say how good the music is in this. I mean, um, there was like a, a beach boy song, uh, around that same time that's used to good effect. And just like the Kokomo, you know, 
Right, right. If and if if you just go watch the trailer, like the trailer is just just listening to the music in the trailer creeps me out. It's just so it's so well done. Yeah, I had an opportunity to uh to ask Jordan Peele about the music for this and his his collaborations with Michael Abels, uh who does the score and was also fantastic with Get Out. If you just listen to it without the movie, you notice things that you don't notice when you're watching it with the film. But especially the uh, the five on it breakdown, uh, I asked about that and where that came from. And Peel was basically talking about how he wanted to use it because it was Bay Area, number one. But also to him, it kind of had a creepy quality, like a nightmare on Elm Street kind of tone to it, which I have to admit, I did not hear from the original. <laughs> but now, of course, every time I hear that song, it's terrifying. But he heard something in it. He heard something in it that I think most people wouldn't hear in it and was able to draw that out and help us all see what he was seeing. Or should I say hear what he was hearing? Right. Have you been following um, like public response to the movie or reviews and things? Or is there anything to say about that? Well, I was, I actually, uh, was reading this thing that went up, uh, yesterday on tour.com and it was an interesting response to the movie that it sort of, uh, echoed Octavia Butler's speech sound story in some ways. And also one, the ones that walk away from Omalus by, uh, Ursula Le Guin. That was an interesting, way in which uh the person i forget who it was was saying basically the tethered are like the ones from the walk who walk away from omalas by uh Le Guin in that they live the horrible lives so that we can live our good lives and the entire issue of like them eating rabbit meat in the in the dark and that sort of thing uh, well, and then speech sounds by Octavia Butler. There's a virus that renders most people unable to like damages their right. speech speech centers of the brain. Yes, exactly. And I kind of saw that where it was sort of uh, underscored. I wonder if he was aware of that. Do you know if he was uh, if he is uh, conversant with Octavia Butler? I don't yeah, know. I, I... I don't know. I don't know. And it strikes me that some of this may be zeitgeist. Yeah. Um, especially speech sounds. That may be just zeitgeist. Uh, how about uh, Evan? Have you uh, followed any? Yeah, well, I mean, it's weird. It's weird to get asked that question. I'm still uh, a critic just doing, despite doing other things in my uh, career. So, yeah, I, I myself wrote about the movie um, after seeing it that opening weekend. Um yeah, I think, you know, the one thing I, I really love so far um, about Jordan Peele's filmmaking career is that he's giving us movies to talk about. They have heft, they have layers, um, they're great metaphors. Um, one of the things he said when we spoke was he feels like, you know, uh, what what horror, like humor, um, is all about being a parable. You know, you're, you're not giving instruction in a very... Um, straight ahead way you're you're using metaphors you're telling a story and you're you're folding the lesson um or the the kind of bigger existential considerations inside another form um and it's that i think that's that's clear that that he's done that with these two movies in a really um impressive way uh 
and I think the conversations that happen around this movie um, are are because of that. So, you know, for me as a critic, when I engage with a piece of work like this, like, I love it because there's just so much to talk about. And I don't even care if I'm wrong. You know, it's just the idea that you can riff and improvise and be in conversation with a creator um, uh, of a really robust work that that kind of uh, uh, demands inquiry and interrogation. Um, so that's, you know, not to speak to a specific piece of criticism, David, but like, I feel like, you know, people roll their eyes and be like, oh, the think pieces are going to come in for us. But I'm like, yes, bring them on. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm in a group chat with some of my friends and we're like, oh, who's read anything good? What, what do you recommend? And like, one of my friends is like, well, I haven't seen it yet. So I'm going to bookmark this stuff. You know, like, it, there's an excitement about, uh, 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 us and these kinds of works as pieces of cultural production. I mean, the same thing happened with Black Panther. As, as these Hawaii horizons broaden, um, I think people are excited to help chart those new paths and figure out, okay, now that we don't have to prove that we can make money in a, in a big blockbuster superhero movie, what's the next one going to be like? What's, you know, uh, uh, what are some things in the past that we may have missed that have been precursors to that? These are the conversations I feel like, you know, actually, um, um, help feed, uh, the filmmakers and, and book writers and, and game makers too. Like, you know, the, 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 the more robust, uh, a vocabulary and a kind of, um, knowledge base we have about, from a critical perspective about these things, that can, I think, I think, I've always believed that this helps inform creative work itself. Well, when you were talking about Jordan Peele, talking about the power of storytelling, it was really making me think because I feel like just on the internet, there's just so much of people saying to other people that you are just the worst person imaginable. Now I want you to accept all of my political views as your own. And I feel like this, like making a movie like this is just such a more like constructive, effective kind of way of getting your message across to people than shouting at them. And you know, the thing about us, like Get Out, is that it's not prescriptive. It is not offering a solution. But okay, well, you know, America, everybody's arguing with each other nowadays. Here's how we can get over it. It's not like that at all. It does not provide the 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 false palliative comfort of a movie like, say, oh, I don't know, Green Book. Um, it doesn't. <laughs> it, it doesn't. It doesn't tell you that. Okay, you know what? Uh, we're all the same underneath. In fact, it tells you the opposite. It tells you like we're all very different underneath. Um, and uh, uh, a refusal to acknowledge those differences and how they come about um, will destroy us all in the end. Yeah, that's where the, the surrealism aspect comes in. And I guess I'll call it Afro-surrealism, you know, but all, in terms of like a, a black lens, if you want to look at it that way, but holding us up as a society to a funhouse mirror. Yeah. You know, and then it's up to us basically to decide what we do with that, <laughs> what we do with that information and, and, and that realization. But it is, as a creator, uh, this is a wildly exciting time. You know, I'm, I'm racing through uh, a feature screenplay myself, you know, just like, because this is, there's never been a better time to be a black creator in Hollywood, period, especially in genre. And there are so many talented people who have not had opportunities to get past gatekeepers. I've been to that meeting where the executive says, do the characters have to be black? And that just cuts your feet like right from under you. It's like, well, <laughs> and now Jordan Peele is saying, no, actually they don't. They don't have to be black. And guess what? It can still make 
money. Um, so this is a this is a hugely exciting time. I wanted to ask you also, Evan. You, uh, I think it was in the New York Times. You said that Us is a new kind of superhero movie. Could you say what you meant by that? Yeah, basically, you know, uh, uh, it's, it's one of the things that I think audiences responded to with Black Panther is that it's pretty much like black excellence and black glory blown up, um, um, huge on the screen for everybody to see. It's the stuff you, you know, if you hear about it in your own family histories, your own cultural histories, and, and, and if you know about, uh, what black diaspora and life is all around the world, like, you're like, hey, uh, we as black people can be awesome. But that so rarely gets shown on the screen in a in a substantive way, and finally seeing it, at least one iteration of that on the screen in that way um, was really galvanizing. Um, but you know what you also want is just the texture of everyday life um, without uh, these grand Shakespearean operatic um, framings um, like Black Panther and Us was that you know like you you know. It's, it's a kind of, um, if we can use heroism to talk about, you know, uh, surviving through adverse experiences, it's a kind of heroism that is, uh, more quotidian, right? It's, it's just familiar in a, in a way that, um, you don't have to have, um, a secret African nation and a heart-shaped herb and a, 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 a ultra-rare, um, a mineral resource to, to, uh, to access that kind of hero- heroism. So, you know, I, I, um, it was, it's ordinariness that, that I thought was, was really radical, um, when I wrote that, um, um, op-ed, you know, the, the Wilson family, the main family, is, they're just, you know, like, they could be your neighbors, you know, they're not from a secret uh, nation that, that resisted colonialism, they're just the folks next door. Um, and I, I think that is really refreshing. See, was anyone following the seek or the um, uh, Jason is really a tethered fan theory? You know, I I hear that and it puzzles me. <laughs> I don't know if there are any uh, believers of that theory uh, on this call, so I'd be curious to know. But it just feels like we saw what happened to the tethered Jason. Wow. So how does that work? That's a stretch. <laughs> I don't get it. So, yeah, I'm not a believer in that theory. I mean, it was kind of interesting when I first heard it, but I, I feel like it doesn't really work for all sorts of reasons. Um, I think people are misunderstanding that look that Jason is giving Adelaide at the end of the film. It's not like a shared, hey, we're both, you know, <laughs> we're both pretending to be people we're not. I think it's that he's recognizing who she is. Right. I know what you did. Right. Yeah. Look. And I'm going to play along. I yeah. think I think one of, there's there's just a line about how he had this magic trick and he doesn't know how to do it anymore and I think people have seized on that and been like oh maybe he doesn't remember how to do it because it wasn't him who did the magic trick. I think that's kind of where it started. Mm. Yeah, it does it doesn't know. fit <laughs> <laughs> because of what we saw. Yeah. Um Craig, do you have anything else? Any other thoughts or anything um that you wanted to bring up about this movie? Um, I just like the fact that it is, uh, I like the fact that it was absurd. I like the absurdity of it, the sort of the surreal, the dark surrealism of it. It isn't just a good movie in terms of, uh, sort of where it was cast and all that, but also in terms of the story that it decided to tell. I mean, 
I, the last time I was on here, we were talking about sorry to bother you. And one of the things that was striking about that is that it completely went off the rails. And this is the same way. I love the fact that you have this major movie that basically goes places where that aren't neatly wrapped up and that he opted for an ambiguous ending. Would you want to see more, Craig, in this universe, or do you feel like this is just fine? I actually think it's fine as it is. I actually don't want it. I think that it ends the way that it should end, which is with a big question mark and lots of discussion afterwards. Because those sorts of movies actually stay with you, or at least stay with me, more than a neatly wrapped up ending. Right, because I have heard Jordan Peele say that he has a lot more sort of uh, backstory or world building worked out for this that that isn't in this movie. So um, I guess we might see some of that at at some point, but we, I, I, I don't think we need it. Right. Um, Tanana Reeve, do you have an opinion on that? Would you want to see more in this uh, in this universe? You know, I, it doesn't feel to me like he's trying to build a franchise out of this film. Um, I'll see any movie he makes. Let me clarify that. <laughs> but what I'm most eager about, <laughs> what I'm most eager about is whatever is next, whatever, uh, is next, because I, I love the courage of this film. Um, the idea that he had to know that some people would walk out of the theater scratching their heads, uh, and some people would feel like, well, that wasn't what I was expecting, and therefore that's a bad thing, and did it anyway. And what's interesting to me is even people who, who were underwhelmed, uh, by, by us will often say, I, I need to see that again. Not, you know, cause usually if you don't like a movie, you just move it, keep it moving. <laughs> but, but people feel a longing to go back. They want to go on the ride and they want to understand. And, um, I think that's exciting. Yeah. I mean, I'm certainly, uh, I'm anxious to see this again because I, I certainly, I want to see Lupita's performance and, you know, knowing, knowing the twist at the end, how, how that recasts everything that you see in the movie. Um, buy your ticket now. Oh, sorry. Buy your buy your ticket now, David. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. All right. So we're pretty much out of time. So maybe I'll give uh, Evan the final word here. So Evan, any uh, any final thoughts on us? Um. You know, I just one of the things that I think is really uh, laudable about uh, us as a movie, as you know, almost from top to bottom, it's such a huge risk. You know, uh, uh, the main characters are a black family. It is this sprawling, um, you know, twisty, uh, 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 prickly kind of storytelling. Um, um, it, 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 social commentary is pretty much there to be read, um, um, without too much work. It is intentionally commenting on, on society as we experience it today. Um, it's an original movie. It's not a sequel or a prequel to anything that's ever come before. You know, I, I think it is a really assured, um, uh, piece of filmmaking craft. Like, uh, um, you know, I don't think it's perfect. There's problems I have with it. Um, but I feel like overall, uh, it reaches for something, you know, grandiose. I'll just say it. And I think it largely succeeds. Um, 
um, and its ambitions. Uh, I, I really love it. You know, like 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 Tanana Reeves said, I'll I'll watch anything uh, Jordan Field does at this point because I think he's fascinating and um, I think he has a meta awareness um, of audience expectations and genre conventions that that just makes you want to see how is he how is he going to play with me this time? How is he going to subvert me? How is he going to uh, uh, surprise me? Um, um, and that's I think. Especially for genre work and horror work, um, what you want to see? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, it's really good. If you haven't seen it, go see it twice. And uh, I think we're gonna wrap things <laughs> oh, up. There. Spoiler alert! If you haven't seen it, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I gave a spoiler alert at the beginning, so we're good. But even if you know how it turns out, you know, there's so much good stuff, so much great performances and music and cinematography and everything. It's it's definitely worth watching. But yeah, so uh, so we've been speaking with Evan Narciss, Tanana reeve Dew, and Craig Lawrence-Gidney. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Evan Narciss, Tanana reeve Dew, and Craig Lawrence-Gidney for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Ruralution, who just made a one-time contribution to the show via PayPal. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show... Visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening. 